You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 30th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Not content with reviving the tradition of attacking its neighbours to the west, Russia also revives the pogrom. Colombia's voters take the opportunity of regional elections to put their new president on notice. And why are we spending the next six months sitting in the dark? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Oscar Huadiola-Rivera will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the author Sarah Dighton about her new book, Toxic, reflecting on the peculiar unpleasantness of being famous and female in the early years of this century. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue and a visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute and by Oscar Huadiola Rivera, professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, Oscar, as always, we are obliged to start by asking about what on earth you are wearing today. Uh, And today it is a a T-shirt advertising a production which I believe you have recently attended. This is Carlos Acosta's uh, take on Black Sabbath music uh, put uh, into a uh, mixture of uh, modern and classical ballet choreography. It was wonderful. Um, it sounds an incongruous pairing, the the black country heavy metal stylings of Ozzy Osbourne and co. and modern ballet, but it works, you think? It worked absolutely fantastically. I uh, saw for the first time people who would never go to a CA ballet enjoying it thoroughly and uh, vice versa. People who would never go to a heavy metal concert, uh, you know, turning up the the chairs and cheering up uh, (laughs) Ossie Osborne of all people. Uh, Excitingly, uh, and to square the circle somewhat, uh, Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath once famously assaulted a previous guest here at Monocle Radio. Uh, My former editor at Melody Maker, Alan Jones, who chronicles the story in one of his excellent memoirs. Um, Isabel, where are you on the... the, uh the heavy metal stylings of Black Sabbath? I fear I have to rely entirely on you for guidance on this. Uh, uh, It's um, not really my forty. What about ballet, though? Up to a point. Up to yeah. a point. Yeah. I mean, th- th- you, you could be the target audience for this. This this could be Possibly. the sweet spot. Possibly. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, I've done I've done my Twilight Tharp like everybody else, but um, and yeah, and the Russian classic. It just doesn't really kind of doesn't really do do it for me i have to say okay. opera on the other hand well i mean there would actually seem to me to oscar to be um, a more natural overlap between uh, the histrionic wailings of black sabbath and actual opera i mean that seems like the logical <laughs> next step doesn't it i hope they go for it <laughs> Well, well, I spotted Phil Manzanera in the audience. Perhaps we would uh, <laughs> ask him to have a go at it. But we will start today's show proper in Russia. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Now, it has always been the case that the Israel-Palestine conflict has had a unique power to inflame tensions elsewhere. Certain cohorts in various other jurisdictions take a much greater interest in events in the Middle East than they do in much bigger wars elsewhere. Inevitably, when events in the Middle East escalate, so do reactions much further afield. Most wretchedly in the last day or so at the airport in Machatkla, uh, capital of the Russian Republic of Dagestan. A large angry mob bellowing anti-Semitic imprecations stormed the airport, apparently seeking the passengers on a flight from Tel Aviv. Um, Isabel, is there any reason why we would not call this a pogrom or perhaps mercifully at least an attempted one? I, I think attempted. I don't think I think perhaps because there really weren't any Israelis on the plane, um, they were spared. But, I mean, the idea that if you were fleeing Israel, for some reason, Dagestan would be your first choice, I find quite eccentric. Um, it's not It's not the normal direction of traffic. Most no. Jews fled the Soviet Union when, as soon as they could, despite actually Russia's uh, current attempts now to present itself as a protector of the Jewish people throughout history. Um, and of course, this um, unpleasant uh, event is blamed on external interference. And who are we to doubt? Well, indeed, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, has blamed outside interference or ill wishes, but that's pretty much his standard line on everything. Uh, Russia, as usual, uh, obdurately incapable of taking any responsibility for anything. Um, Oscar, authorities in Dagestan have promised to come down hard on this. 60 people have so far been arrested. Um, are we much placated by that? I mean, these see, we, you get a sense of it from that audio we played, but these, these scenes are horrendous and it is pretty unmistakable what was animating that mob and it is unpleasantly easy to imagine what might have happened had they found uh, any of the people they were looking for. It's deeply concerning news come the same day as the UK police announces he will treat the throwing of a petrol can against uh, the car park of a mosque in Oxford as a potential hate crime. Mm -hmm. What we are witnessing here is what uh, black Latin Americans, uh, Latin American writers who uh, witnessed the uh, rise of fascism in Europe used to call a Manichaean logic, which simplifies the colorful complexity of our world into the simplistic uh, hues of black and white us versus them, light against darkness. Um, Isabel, do countries everywhere, though, need to start taking this possibly more seriously than they are? In Paris today, several Jewish schools were evacuated after receiving bomb threats, and I don't think there's going to be an end to this kind of thing anytime soon. One could reasonably argue that there never really has been. Well, indeed, and it'll, I think it'll only, um, it will only get worse. But I think we need to you know, hope that governments tone down the propaganda too and take a different tone in their public pronouncements because at the moment we have a kind of an international, a set of international statements which are very much kind of one side or the other. Um, and and I think that that allows space for this kind of inflammatory behaviour. And I, you know, it's it's very depressing And but it'll it'll only get worse. However this is resolved, there is going to be far more blood spilt and appalling scenes are going to take place in Gaza before this is over. And that simply is going to inflame it further. I mean, there's also a question here, Oscar, of how media organisations respond to these. And 
I, I mean, I, I do have uh, an amount of sympathy for the BBC, which everybody, at least in this country, enjoys yelling at about any slight deviation from the agenda of the yeller at any point as they try to cover a story. But the, the BBC initially called this particular incident an anti-Israeli protest, which is possibly an arguable definition and certainly, I think, possibly a respectable placeholder until you figure out what's actually going on. Uh, they have more recently changed that to mob storms Russian airport in search of Jews. Now, neither of those is particularly inaccurate. But what is the way that a media organisation should characterise something like this? Should they go first for the idea that this is a protest against Israel or should they characterise it as an anti-Semitic pogrom? Because it is arguable that both of those definitions are accurate. Isabel is correct in pointing out that uh, uh, all media and uh, not only uh, governments but also the media should tone down one-sided statements. Also vague I mean, there's statements not, but there's not like, really, like there's this not, one. There's not really two sides to this particular incident, though. Precisely. What we must uh, uh, resist with all our might is the attempt to simplify what is uh, a complex uh, 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 issue, uh, a terrible issue, into this uh, binary logic of uh, light versus darkness, good versus evil. When uh, we do that, we just play into the hands of uh, uh, those who would like to see uh, these turn into a, a never-ending a never conflict. How should uh, the media uh, deal with this? By uh, calling it as it is. What we saw in, uh, in uh, uh, Russia uh, is uh, very much an attempted program, and it should be called as it is. What we're witnessing, again, is the, the rise of uh, the kind of uh, uh, binary logic uh, that accompanies the, ri the, the rise of fascism. Uh, it is not surprising that we're seeing those things precisely as uh, uh, the conflict uh, uh, becomes more and more uh, 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 dangerous and uh, problematic. The, the difficulty, and it's an eternal difficulty, Isabel, just finally on this, is that any media organisation or any political leader who wants to steer people away from this binary logic that Oscar is talking about is faced with getting up in front of the modern media and political landscape and going, well, actually, this is all really incredibly complicated. Uh, nobody wants to hear that. Well, if you don't do that, you're you're just closing down the, any future possibility. I mean, it, it is surely the job of politicians to try to keep space open for uh, conversations that lead, in the end, to a resolution of this. Because otherwise, you know, we're just we're just allowing violence to take its course. If we allow this situation to be determined entirely by violence, with no other end game, then you know, this is this is kind of thing is going to continue. We know that very well, you know, an eye for an eye makes us all blind. Absolutely. Well, we will doubtless be covering this story and its international ramifications across all our programmes this week. But now to China, where the time bomb otherwise known as Evergrande has been given a few more weeks to tick. The embattled, if not downright beleaguered, property developer was due to face a winding up hearing today, but this has been rescheduled for Monday, December 4th. Evergrande is currently 268 billion quid in the tank, give or take, and has been trying to assemble a plausible repayment plan for a couple of years now, so it is unclear what difference another 35 days is going to make. Um, Isabel, they have 
if I've done the maths right, 35 days to find £268 billion, which does strike me as quite a lot of money. Um, Do we like their chances? I think what we hear is the sound of a rather empty can being kicked down the road for another few weeks. I have to say, if I were the judge, I probably wouldn't want to be the one who finally pulled the plug and and bought Evergrande, the world's biggest and most indebted property company, crashing down with all the implications that that would have for the Chinese economy. And actually, you know, it's not going to be one big bang. Even the, the, the winding up of Evergrande Grand, were that to happen, as it surely will in five weeks' time, is going to take years. There are, th- there are thousands of you know subsidiaries. It's immensely complicated. It's another kind of lifetime's job, but a lifetime job with short-term implications for the economy, which are not too happy. So no, I mean, they're not going to. I I would be astonished if they got out of this in five weeks. It's. They've been trying, as you say, for at least two years. It's not going to happen. I mean, Oscar, is it wrong to be worried here about echoes of 2008 in the United States when an overheated property market... Um does something over- implode after it overheats? You know where I'm going with that. I'm not sure if the <laughs> metaphor is necessarily scientifically sound, but we, we all know what happened and what effects were, you know brought to bear then on the global economy. Uh, You're absolutely right. It is concerning. In fact, we have been hearing all uh, uh, year about uh, woes uh, in the global economy, not just uh, uh, caused by uh, uh, the Chinese decline, but uh, also the scares we we had uh, uh, in the financial sector uh, as a whole. What is happening in China adds to those uh, fears. We're we're not. Uh, we have never been out of the woods uh, from what happened in 2008. In fact, we were just happening. We we're just talking about uh, the. Uh, arguably where the political repercussions of uh, uh, those events were still there. What is happening in China makes things uh, 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 a lot uh, uh, more concerning. So uh, we are right to worry about uh, what is happening there. This is surely, Isabel, the, the Chinese Communist Party's, well, one of its worst nightmares, even even if, perhaps especially if the economic damage is largely contained within China, uh, it will be considerable and they will have memories of 2008 and the Western world and how angry people were with the people who were in charge when a property bubble popped. Yes, I think the anger of the people is probably what they're worrying about most because, uh, you know, the, the great Chinese middle class put their money in property in, in a really major way. They bought apartments for themselves mm-hmm. and they bought apartments for their children and then they bought spare apartments because there was nowhere else to put your money and the prices kept going up, so why wouldn't you? And if you if all of this comes tumbling down, you're essentially wiping out the life savings of a large part of the Chinese middle class, which even for the Chinese Communist Party <laughs> is quite a big step. So it's actually not clear. I mean, this case in Hong Kong was brought by creditors in a court in Hong Kong. It's not absolutely clear that the Chinese government would recognize a judgment in any event and would proceed to or would allow uh, liquidation to proceed. So it's a very messy situation because actually Evergrande is a mainland company, not a Hong Kong company, though it has assets in Hong Kong. And the jurisdiction of a Hong Kong court is not entirely clear in this matter. So we're not really kind of, we're just entering more complexity. And if the government can keep it nudging along, it will.
Well, we will come back to this one possibly in 35 days from now and see how we're getting on. Uh, Oscar, elsewhere in China-related news, uh, President Santiago Peña of Paraguay uh, has said that his country will stick with Taiwan. To remind listeners, you have a choice, basically. You can have full diplomatic relations with Taiwan or with the People's Republic of China. There are a dozen and change countries left which are sticking with Taiwan. And despite the fact that a few Latin American countries have changed their minds recently, Guatemala most recently, I think I'm right in saying. Um, No, it wasn't Guatemala. It was Honduras. Um, Paraguay is sticking with Taiwan. How significant is that? It is not that significant. Paraguay has a strong educational ties uh, with Taiwan and uh, the two sides uh, jointly established the Taiwan-Paraguay Polytechnic University in 2019, if memory serves me well. Uh, But it wouldn't be significant uh, for the region as a whole. Uh, Peña is trying to paint Paraguay uh, into, uh, you know, a distinct color uh, from uh, the uh, current um, uh, leadership in elsewhere in the in the continent uh, having said that uh, it is not seen uh, in the rest of the continent uh, uh, in the in the same manner it is not you know the influence of china is not seen as uh, totally asymmetrical. Uh, This is uh, most countries uh, in Latin America see themselves as active as they should. They are not passive actors in these uh, uh, relations. And although uh, many, Brazil, Colombia, others uh, do have uh, important relations with China in cases, in other cases, such as Argentina, China is uh, one of the main uh, uh, trading partners. There are also relationships with uh, northern global northern countries, the U.S. in particular, and so on. So uh, this is rather the, dip- the, the, the diplomatic tactic behind it is, you know, keeping keeping your eggs in in in, in more baskets. Uh, so this idea that we're sticking to one but not the other doesn't really have traction elsewhere in the in the Western Hemisphere. Is there any prospect, Isabel, that Taiwan might get? one or more of these countries back. It's it's not unheard of for countries to go one way, then the other, and then there's a couple of West African ones that have been back and forth a few times, uh, in fact, and I, I have to say, I do admire their enterprise. You, if, Absolutely. Every so often go to the other mob and say, have you got a better offer? If that's your only chip, play it for all it's exactly. worth. Um, I, I'm not sure that you'll see this in Latin America, but it is interesting the degree to which China has become a factor in domestic elections. You know, had the recent elections in Paraguay gone the other way, um, Paraguay would have uh, broken mm. with Taiwan and, and recognized the People's Republic. And if you listen to what the eccentric presidential candidate in Argentina, uh, Javier Millet, is saying, he is uh, extremely rude about China, saying, you know, you won't make any new deals with, uh, with, with any communists and certainly not with China. His aides then kind of walk that back a bit and say, well, what we mean is no secret deals like the ones <laughs> that this government's been making. But it has entered into, it's entered into domestic politics in quite an important way. I mean, Paraguay's case, I, I remember Paraguay having a close relationship <coughs> with Taiwan back in the 60s with the World Anti-Communist League. It was, you know, it was part of the Cold War relationship when Stroessner was still around. Um, But, you know, now it's a matter of can we sell more, can we get more if we switch to the People's Republic, if we quit uh, Taiwan. I think Taiwan will be very generous with Paraguay and has been pretty generous with Paraguay to keep it on side. Um, Oscar, just finally on this one, before we move on to another Latin American politics story, 
Um, Isabel is being extremely cautious, arguably courteous there when she describes Javier Millet as merely eccentric. Um, but is what he's saying about China potentially tapping into something across Latin America more broadly, is there a certain amount of disquiet that we might have backed the wrong horse here? You, you took the words out of my mouth. Isabel <laughs> was very, very kind. Uh, Javier Millet is not eccentric. He, he might be president, that is true. And he's you not, could uh, say mad as a hatter. Yeah, <laughs> mad as a hatter and, and uh, a real, uh, you know, he calls himself a libertarian. He's nothing of the sort. He is a fascist. Let's, let's, let's say it. And uh, uh, the reason why he's backtracking is because those who support him among the economic elites, and there are still economic elites in uh, an economy as beleaguered as Argentina's, uh, know that uh, China is a, a crucial trading partner. So Millet cannot be saying those things. Yes, this uh, can gain subtraction perhaps in places like Chile also. Uh, but again, this is playing to the, to the, to the gallery, to uh, some uh, uh, part of the electorate who already uh, has uh, his heart uh, to the right side. So in fact, it's not politically effective. Those who would in any case vote for you uh, will not be more convinced because you uh, come out as uh, anti-China. Uh, and again, when it comes to the Western Hemisphere, our politics are, are have our geopolitics have everything to do with Washington. So Venezuela, of course, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is a case in point. Uh, big, uh, uh, you know, big relations with China. But now the U.S. is uh, already, you know, last week allowing uh, Venezuela to sell oil in uh, U.S. Uh, markets, uh, and that would change things very quickly. Well, it is common across the democratic world for voters to enjoy regional and or local elections, principally as an opportunity to deliver an exemplary spanking to whoever happens to be running the country at the time. Yesterday, the voters of Colombia embraced this tradition with considerable gusto, turfing out governors, mayors and councillors, even vaguely associated with Colombia's president of little more than a year, Gustavo Petro. Petro, to his credit, has worn defeat without too much complaint, promising through almost audibly gritting teeth to respect the voice of the people. Um, Oscar, what was the voice of the people telling him? Was it, pack your bags? <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, actually, his uh, movement did win uh, uh, in uh, a couple of important provinces, in Nariño and Magdalena. Mm -hmm. And what uh, our audience needs to know is... Uh, uh, to distinguish uh, presidential national elections in most Latin American countries, they're very different from local elections. Local elections tend to be dominated by local electoral barons. And that's exactly what we saw here. Uh, the, the, you know, the barons in Medellin voted for uh, their boss. So you had uh, Federico uh, 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 elected as uh, mayor of Medellin, but he was defeated in the, in the last uh, presidential election. And he has no... Uh, chance of ever uh, being a, a nationally recognizable name. Uh, actually, that's what happened in Bogota, which was arguably the biggest loss for uh, Petro's uh, movement. The, Petro himself, former mayor of Bogota. Yes. The uh, candidate who won, well, this is his third time uh, uh, presenting uh, his name before the electorate, whereas, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the candidate of uh, Petro's movement uh, was not uh, as recognizable. 
so we we see, and the guy who won is the son of a former politician, a martyr politician. So so you see the the this is the normal politics of uh, of Colombia in particular, but more generally in Latin America, presidential elections are a very different thing. Having said that, uh, Petro's uh, rating polls are low. And, uh, of course, Colombia's, uh, Colombia, this is the first time you have a leftist uh, as mm-hmm. a president. And uh, uh, everybody can will, will tell you that he has this chance. It is a very short uh, chance. Not many people expect uh, a repetition uh, of the same in the next presidential elections. Um, Isabel, uh, the president's beaten ally in Bogota, uh, Gustavo Bolivar, and you would have thought in Colombia that surname would be an electoral mm-hmm. advantage, right? yeah. but, but never mind. Um, he did say the situation is difficult uh, with citizens who believe that change could be made in a few months and have become disillusioned. Uh, that has kind of a universal resonance, doesn't it? No, Nobody, people vote for change, fine, uh, but they want it now. They want it now and they want it easy and they want it without consequences. And I think that window <laughs> turned out to be rather... Uh, you should be writing uh, campaign now. slogans for someone, Isabel. <laughs> now, easy and without consequences. But unfortunately, uh, uh, as we see, it's it's harder when you're actually in the office. I'm not sure um, how much the, the these election results are, are going to make it even more difficult um, to enact change in Colombia. I suspect that the kind of digging of the heels in in major cities is going to make life more difficult. So I think that window may already have closed. Um, how is uh, Oscar President Petro doing on his own criteria? I mean, he hasn't been in the job that long, but despite what the voters uh, appear to think of him, is he actually making progress in terms of what he said he would do while in office? There is considerable progress in two very important areas. The implementation of the peace accords, Mm -hmm. very important. In fact, we have newer uh, peace dialogues with uh, uh, the dissidents uh, from FARC, the National Liberation Army, and even uh, so-called criminal groups. That is very important for a country that has lived the kind of violence that Colombia has. This is crucial. Uh, And there is also still a chance that his health reform will pass in Congress, probably not in the shape that he would have preferred, but uh, uh, still, that is something he could hail as a triumph. Uh, In uh, all the other uh, legislative areas, he has not uh, been able to maintain the coalition that would have allowed him uh, to uh, enact uh, legislation. Uh, So... uh, it is easy to see why uh, people uh, are angry. I mean, Isabel was absolutely correct. We live in times in which uh, 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 the electorate uh, expects, expects democracies to perform magic, and, and, and it, it never happens that way. Uh, now, people do recognize uh, that Petro has, uh, under Petro's administration, violence in the country has come down, and that's very, very important. I, I just wonder as well, finally on this, uh, Isabel, if there's another universal resonance in this. And it, it, it's often the case that uh, revolutionaries or people who were revolutionaries in their past, as President Petro was, get elected and then find that governing is hard and boring as opposed to standing on barricades, making impassioned speeches, which is much easier and tremendously good fun. Um, I've always thought that's a bit unfair on President Petro because he wasn't actually a guerrilla terribly long and he was a guerrilla as a very, very young man. And he has since had an actual career in politics, been a senator, member of parliament, mayor of Bogota, etc. But 
does the the burden of that revolutionary past go two ways? Does it actually cause further impatience among your voters? Because they're the ones thinking, well, come on, man, you were the one who was going to bring sweeping change and upset everything and do away with the old order. And you've been in office for, I don't know, a year and a half and free beer isn't coming out of the taps. <laughs> it may well be the case. In his case, I mean, in, in fact, in the, in the other ele- election we referenced, uh, the, the third candidate who's just gone out in Argentina, Patricia Bullrich, was also so uh, um, a revolutionary in her youth um, and then metamorphosed into a rather right-wing figure. So it can go, it depends on your record, but I would have thought in his case, yes, since he's fairly, you know, he's stuck to the idea of change, however you bring it about, um, that that would be a high expectation, yeah. Well, here in the UK and many similarly masochistic countries, an annual and avoidable act of pointless self-harm has been undertaken over the weekend, everybody winding clocks back an hour in order to make the Northern Hemisphere winter even more bloody miserable than it is anyway. For the next six stupid months, it will get dark in the middle of the afternoon, after which we will again wind the clocks forward an hour and still find ourselves wasting unconscionable hours of morning daylight. Seriously, in in London, the sun comes up at like 4am. The question for the panel is, should the UK adopt, and hear me out, permanent GMT plus two, or are you some sort of sociopathic troglodyte? Isabel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, let's go back and look at this, shall we, Uh, Andrew? I'm sensing a a vote for the sociopathic troglodyte uh, tendency here. (laughs) 1968 and 1971, I was living in North Britain. And at that time, for those years, uh, we stuck to... The same uh, years as they're known. BST throughout the winter. Mm -hmm. And that meant that if you were living in North Britain, you got up in the dark and the cold, and it was pretty dark and cold in North Britain, and you had to set off and pretend that your day was going to work out all right, no matter the the fact that you were leaving home after breakfast in the dark. It was very unpleasant. Uh, I'd rather uh, come home in the dark where really? you think, OK, you know, we're going to have a nice evening, when, you know, having dinner. But setting off in the dark is really disagreeable. Well, no, I mean, mornings are awful anyway, so it doesn't matter whether they're light or dark or My not. My theory is you never quite see the mornings because you're, you're a night owl well, the, and you the, don't uh, understand how difficult it is. There is, there is a case to be made on that front but my obvious arguments um my obvious argument oscar is that it's just miserable when it's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon it sucks who would live like this but is there actually a serious argument that it reduces energy costs because people don't need to turn their lights on in the afternoons and evenings it makes the streets safer uh, it reduces car accidents because people can actually see. I mean, come on, help me out here, fellow <laughs> fellow Southern <laughs> Hemisphere. Look, the, the energy the energy argument is not a very good one, and no. that has been, that has ah. been proven uh, time and again. But, you but there there are some correlations between these and and uh, better health. There are arguments for and against it. No, there are. So aren't. yes, <laughs> so. So I have a better one. Because you're absolutely right, this, you know, it's just miserable. My option is more whiskey. 
<laughs> more, more whiskey or a different time zone? I mean, why should Scotland have to follow England well, anyway? Well, it, it, it shouldn't. Back where I come from, Queensland, despite being on the same longitude as New South Wales and Victoria immediately below, it does not recognise daylight saving time. They refuse to put their clocks forward an hour in the summer because, as we all know, Queenslanders believe that the extra hour of daylight fades their curtains. <laughs> uh, and, and yet, you know, the, 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 the country proceeds. And there's no reason why Scotland can't have a different time zone. My case for GMT plus two permanently is that we've tried that uh, during World War II, 1941 yes. to 1945, the UK was on British double summer time and we won. Who can argue with that? <laughs> yeah, we won because we were fighting somewhere else. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I tell you, had it been here, you'd have been lost. What did either of you do with your extra hour of um, daylight, or did we lose an no, hour yesterday? Hour. Oh, in that we case, lost. fine. Yeah. Well, what what did you miss doing with your lost hour of? I, I feel like nothing. we gained. I, I feel like I... we gained an hour. No, I didn't. Well, we no, definitely didn't. gained an hour because the clocks go back. You lose an hour when they go forward. Well, yesterday, we're, we're Sunday just was proving an hour this longer. is totally confusing. I know because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I spent it trying to remember how to change the clock on my microwave oven. <laughs> We definitely had an extra hour on Sunday, or did it just seem that way? Yeah, we definitely did. They're telling yes. me in production. See, once again, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> um, Isabel, you, you can't be budged on this? Do you, do you actually think there would be, uh, in Scotland, acquiescence with the idea of a separate Scottish time zone? Uh, I, I think I think there would be a certain pleasure taken in it. And, and they would. I think there might be more acceptance of that than going back to dark mornings. Well, on that hopeful note of compromise, Isabel Hilton and Oscar Huadiola Rivera, thank you for joining us. And now. You're about to see what we've done there. The first decade of the 21st century had long been anticipated as the dawning of an enlightened new era. In many respects, it probably was better than most of the decades which had gone before it, but for one particular cohort, i.e. women in the public eye, it was arguably uniquely awful, as new media combined with the collapse of the old entertainment complex to leave female celebrities more viciously scrutinised and more hopelessly vulnerable. A new book by Sarah Dighton, Toxic. You see what we've done there now. Women, Fame and the Noughties chronicles this aspect of this era and wonders what, if anything, we learned from it. I spoke to Sarah at Midori House earlier. I began by asking her about the nine female celebrities she chose to encapsulate that era and whether, even if there was something distinguishingly horrible about the Noughties, there were predecessors in previous decades. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say that female celebrities have always been under an extraordinary kind of scrutiny. But what happens in the years I look at, a long noughties, which is from 1998 to 2013, is, first of all, you've got changes in technology that drive a really rapacious, aggressive gossip culture and are also really destructive to the entertainment industry. So the year after Britney releases Baby One More Time. This is the beginning of your long decade, yeah, 98. 98. Napster is launched in 1999 and it immediately craters the value of the music industry, which means someone like Britney, who has been in training from childhood for a really specific form of stardom, where you make records, you do in the book I compared her to Madonna, so Madonna, I think, in her early career, she does one tour for every two albums and because the value of record sales has collapsed so much in Britney's era, she ends up doing 
a tour for every single album that she releases in her early career and then some sort of extra little mini tours crammed in between as well. So she's working astonishingly hard just because the economics of the music industry have changed that much. Mm. So that's one kind of pressure that falls on these women. And the other is that when you've got the internet, you've got more competition between publications for attention because they are now up against online resources as well. So they are then incentivized to be even more aggressive in the kind of coverage they pursue. And the other thing that comes under that heading is that you've got new camera technology. So paparazzi have got digital cameras. They can take more pictures. They can be more agile. They can literally get down in the gutter and do the sort of classic noughties upskirt picture. Mm. And all of this just creates a feeding frenzy. This is what you call a combination of new technology and old misogyny. And, And by there, I guess we're seeing that the internet during this decade it enabled people to operate around such decorum as the old school media still tried to adhere to, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I also think because the internet really collapses the distinction between private and public in a way that is very shocking now to look back and realise, but I don't think we fully realised that was what was happening at the time. And the truth is that the public-private division acts differently for men and women because we have different Mm. ideas about you know, what is the place of men and women in public and private life? Because women are habitually associated with the private sphere, with the domestic. To be beyond that is to kind of make yourself accessible in a way that doesn't apply to men. And that really assists the intensity of the coverage in this period. As you describe it, for each of these nine women, it was an incredibly bruising, really unimaginably difficult experience. But is there an argument, and I know that this is a tabloid editor's argument, that at least some of them knowingly bought the ticket and took the ride here, most obviously perhaps Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian? I think that's a really interesting question, and it's interesting to put those two together because I would say Kim did buy the ticket. She understood what she was getting into. But she starts to get famous later in the decade. So she starts to come to public attention around 2007, 2008. Paris starts to break through to public attention around 1999. So really predates blogging culture, is very much entering the world of stardom under the old rules of engagement. And I think you look at Paris Hilton's experience and she could not possibly have known what was coming. And she certainly had no interest in her sex tape being released. She made every step she possibly could to suppress it. But the complicating factor is once it was impossible to suppress that sex tape because the law and social mores were very much against any possibility of suppressing sex tapes at that time, her only option really was to either pack her entire career in and go home and live a cloistered life forever or to lean into it, to embrace the joke that had been written around it and to sort of encompass the sex tape into the character of the Don Blonde that she was playing on TV. And that's what she chose to do, and it was very successful for her. And it's only retrospectively that she's, in the last few years, that she's said, actually, that was a deeply traumatic experience to me. And the really interesting thing she said is that she couldn't talk about the sundry traumas that she had, not just around the sex tape, but other experiences in her early life, 
because during the noughties, it would have been, quote unquote, bad for her brand. And she is a very savvy operator. And I think she has known how to play it, even when the game has been pitched against her. I mean, as you make clear in the book, the popular culture of this time was very much formative popular culture for you. Mm. You bought the records and you had the posters of Britney Spears and others on your walls and so forth. When you revisit it now, did you end up worrying that you and the other fans of these women had actually, whether wittingly or not, been complicit in the damage? Yeah, well, certainly the complicity of the fan is a question that I've chewed over quite a lot, not just in relation to this, to be honest, in relation Mm. to all kinds of other problematic things that I enjoy. Um, (laughs) And, you know, one of the strangest parts of writing this book was I obviously kind of immersed myself in a lot of the music I was writing about, and that meant... Because there's a chapter about Aaliyah, who was a Mm. protégé of R. Kelly. I listened to a lot of R. Kelly, and I was kind of, like, reached this point where I was kind of bopping around the kitchen to ignition, thinking, is this all right? Is this... (laughs) This is where I want my life to be. (laughs) It's a difficult relationship, I think, that idea of moral responsibility that you have as a fan, because certainly, and also fan is maybe not the right word for all the ways in which people in this period were enjoying or gaining entertainment from these women, because certainly a huge part of the pleasure of watching them was watching them fall apart and, in some cases, waiting for them to die. So it's certainly a complicated relationship. I think looking back on this, I can certainly see ways in which how these women were treated affected how I thought about myself and other women in everyday life. And it's something that has come up a lot in conversations with my friends as well. But I don't feel like there's much to be gained from sort of admonishing yourself. But but nonetheless, that way, that does speak of incredible ripples of damage that that decade and its popular culture could arguably have done. Mm, Yeah, very much. But I also think that these women were in some ways canaries in the coal mine Mm. for changes that were about to come for everybody. I think at the start of this period, fame is, in the book I call it, an elite trauma. So (laughs) only, only a very small number of people get to be famous or get to be embraced by public life. And as bruising as it can be, and there are stories I mentioned in the book of people who are absolutely ravaged by fame. I mean, there's a chunk about Marilyn Monroe in the Lindsay Lohan section. So it can certainly be incredibly damaging, but it happened to fewer people and it did at least tend to come with a sort of commensurate financial reward with it. What changes through this period as the attention economy gets established is that you can get famous, but you're not going to get rich necessarily from the things that are making you famous. And by the end of this period, that's a state of affairs that applies actually to pretty much everyone in the world. If you have a social media profile, you have the potential to become quote-unquote famous in a really unpleasant way that's not going to do you any favours. Your long decade ends, I think, in 2013. It begins, as we were saying, in 1998 with Baby One More Time, ends in 2013 with Blurred Lines and, and Robin Thicke, the somewhat hapless soul singer, becomes the bewildered lightning rod for years of quite reasonable uh, stacked up resentment, annoyance, rage, irritation, etc. It won't be any consolation, of course, to Mr Thick, but do you get any 
any sense that since then things have actually improved at all for women trying to operate in the public or online realm, whether they're properly famous or just trying to tell a few jokes on Twitter? Mm. I think in some ways, definitely yes. So a lot of the kind of coverage that I write about, the very, very aggressive paparazzi tactics, I don't think you would find many papers or outlets that are keen to publish photos that have been acquired in that way any longer. The whole sex tape industrial complex, (laughs) that is effectively destroyed after 2013 when Gorka published their post Mm. about the Hulk Hogan sex tape and Peter Thiel, the PayPal billionaire, has been sitting on his hands for, I think, nearly 10 years by that point, waiting for an opportunity to destroy Gorka for outing him way back in the past. And he brings a legal action that effectively finishes Gorka and that also finishes off the mainstream coverage of celebrity sex tapes because nobody wants to have their entire publication absolutely financially demolished for the sake of one salacious post anymore. So those changes are really significant. I think what you do find though is the sorts of misogyny I write about have kind of moved out to the fringes. So on internet forums, on messaging apps, loads of revenge porn is freely shared Mm -hmm. and it is a constant battle for women to prevent that or control it. The kind of hatred and judgment towards women that's still really widely expressed I think it's shifted form slightly so you're much less likely to find women shamed and disgraced for being quote unquote mad or quote unquote slutty but there's a lot more focus on kinds of moral failings Mm. which you could see as coming under cancel culture but it's still the same logic of purity really being applied to women That was Sarah Dighton. Her book, Toxic Women, Fame and the Naughties, is out now and very much recommended. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Oscar Huadiola-Rivera. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 